This is Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. Hi, this is Bob Johnston. You're listening to Being Catholic right here on Catholic Spirit Radio, 89.5 FM and 92.5 FM in good old McLean County and Bloomington Normal, 88.3 in Pontiac, 97.1 in Lincoln, 89.1 in DeKalb, and uh, we are getting some new stations as well, and we are covering both Central Illinois and also Northern Illinois. We're trying to get some stations down in Southern Illinois, Clinton. We're going to have a great show for you today. I'm here with my wife, Lynn, and uh, we also have a couple of special guests with us today that I will introduce to you in a moment, and uh, we're going to have a great talk topic for you, and I'll introduce that in a moment as well. Remember, the show is brought to you by you, and I mentioned the stations that we are getting. We have the station up in DeKalb. We're getting one further north than that, trying to get one in Clinton. All of that is made possible by you, so remember this show and Catholic Spirit Radio and all of the the programming on EWTN is brought to you by you. Any donations that you are able to give, we greatly appreciate if you would like to make a donation, you can go to our website, and that's catholicspiritradio.com. Again, that's catholicspiritradio.com. Go to that website. You'll get a lot more information about us. It will tell you how to make a donation, and anything can you, you can give would be greatly appreciated. Uh, I want to also remind everyone that we are in the uh, time of Lent. And uh, at this time especially, I hope that we all have prayers for the world because everyone knows and is aware of, of course, of what's going on in it. And there have always been wars, but now we have an especially cruel one that's going on in Ukraine. I hope everyone out there prays for the people in Ukraine. And uh, it would be good if we can get something like this stopped. At any rate, I want to introduce uh, our special guests this morning, and uh, we're here with uh, Michael Knacker, and he is a registered nurse, and also with a guest, Donna Redding. She is also a registered nurse, and uh, Michael works in dialysis. Donna is an RN who has taught uh, nursing. She's worked in uh, ER. She's also worked in obstetrics, the operating room, She's worked a lot also with the dying, and uh, my wife Lynn also is a nurse, and uh, she has worked uh, in a lot of the various areas in the hospital and has been uh, in contact with dying patients as well. And that is going to be our topic today. We are going to talk about the process of dying, the process uh, of death and uh, mourning, and all that goes with it. It's a subject that uh, it seems our modern society avoids a lot today and a subject that is not addressed as much as it should be. Uh, we will also be talking about some of the uh, what we call life after death experiences or after death experience or near death experience, sometime maybe out of body experience and uh, some uh, the information along that line. And that also is an interesting topic. I want to point out that uh, in the modern world, there seems to be a split between science and religion. There's sort of an animosity between the two. There's this split between spirit and matter and uh, faith and reason. And as Catholics and uh, with the Catholic Church, we have a history of 2,000 years. 
And the Catholic Church believes, of course, in both faith and reason. It also believes in both spirit and matter. And uh, it doesn't go to extremes on both sides. Uh, We have experiences that sometimes can be explained and sometimes they can't be. Some seem to be spiritual and others may be more material. And you get extremes on both sides that sometimes try to explain these things away or assume that they know what the explanation is when both sides uh, don't know that for sure. And there's nothing wrong, of course, with making a materialistic explanation of processes going on. But to say that you know exactly what is happening is to say too much. And uh, going the other way also sometimes is the same too much. So with that in mind, we're going to uh, go into that explanation. Before we start, I want to turn this over to my wife, Lynn, a nurse who will give us a definition of death and dying and exactly you know what death is. So I'll turn it over to you, Lynn, and let you take it from there. The clinical explanation or definition of death is the sensation of all vital bodily functions, including respirations, heart, and brain. Everything shuts down. The near-death experiences experience occurs between clinical death and resuscitation. There's a period of time there that you can be resuscitated. So uh, very often people have what they call a near-death experience during that time where they see a column of light or they see people that they have known in their past lives or relatives and so forth. That is called, And they then are revived and come back and can explain all that, what they had seen. That would be a near-death experience. But the clinical definition of death is a cessation of all bodily functions and mind. Okay. Uh, What I would like to do uh, in the program is let's go ahead and start out with just the process of death, dying, and mourning itself. It seems to me that's a topic that certainly should be addressed first. Uh, it seems, maybe I'll start with this and just throw this out, and then we can use it as a springboard to get into a further conversation. Do you find, I'll, I'll let this uh, open for either Michael or Donna, whoever wants to speak on it first, but do you find that in our modern society there is almost sort of a total avoidance of the whole process of dying and of death in almost, uh, in a way, uh, a denial uh, of the process happening. I mean, how, how do you find people reacting, say, family and others, to this process that's going on? And, you know, anything else that you might want to add about the actual physical process of death and dying? And Donna or Michael, whoever wants to go first. If I could preface by saying there is no such thing as the act of dying. The dying process happens in a wide range of circumstances over a wide variety of time lengths so that we can't really explain the dying process. I'll give a couple of examples by what I mean. Um, and, and Michael, I know we'll be able to give more information about this particular path. For many people, the dying process can take up to months 
depending on what their physical diagnosis is and what their condition involves. Completely different from the experience of traumatic death, where an individual might um, experience a heart attack and die suddenly, perhaps be in a motor vehicle accident, perhaps be in some sort of other type of natural disaster or not-so-natural disaster. So the process of dying differs radically depending on the nature of the cause. Michael, do you want to comment uh, on, on that? Yeah, it's just kind of continue with what you were saying. Yeah, people tend to pass away either with a bang or with a, with a whimper. Yeah. And the bang, that's pretty clear what, what happened. But when you're going out the whimper route, it's a lot more subtle. Um, it takes time and preparation for the family and so forth. Mm-hmm. There's time for that. In the bang, there's no time. Yeah, and in healthcare, um, when you work with people who are not well, you tend to recognize patterns. And as healthcare people, sometimes we're a little quick to place these patterns on people. Where family, if they haven't seen a lot of death before, they might not recognize it as quickly. And there have been situations in healthcare where um, maybe like on a floor in a hospital, like a lot of the staff understand what's going on, but the family hasn't quite come to terms yet. And um, it's the job of the healthcare folks to continue the will of the patient or the power of attorney, keep get, providing the cares that are being requested. And sometimes to help the family kind of come to terms and sometimes they need like an extra day or two to recognize, oh, mom's not well. Exactly. Our, our responsibility as healthcare providers is certainly to the dying patient, but also to the grieving family or the soon to be grieving family. And you make that good point. Used to be back in the day that there was a philosophy that if someone was dying from cancer or other causes, uh, I used to experience families saying, don't tell mom. I don't want her to know she's dying. Don't tell dad. I don't want him to know he's dying. Inevitably, the individual who's dying knows one way or another that they're dying. And the disadvantage of not having that conversation between the dying patient and the grieving family is that so much emotional and financial and social work doesn't get done before the individual dies. So current philosophy is have that conversation to be honest with those who are experiencing or will be experiencing the dying process, either themselves or their families, and as healthcare workers, to be that facilitator of that communication process. You mentioned the power of attorney, Michael, which is an important thing, I think, to say something about now. In the case that an individual who is dying reaches the point where he or she is unable to make his or her own decisions, the power of attorney is the person that is appointed to speak on behalf of the patient and help healthcare workers to make decisions for the patient's care. I was just wondering, Donna, uh, and both of you are talking about this, uh, you know, to tell the patient and not tell the, who Who makes the decision or when and how is the decision made that someone is dying? I mean, your health care givers and uh, the doctor is also uh, when is, is there someone that makes a decision to uh, tell the family or does someone make a decision? Does a doctor do that or how, how, how is that approach done? I think, Michael, we can safely say it's a team approach. Yeah. 
as to who actually has the conversation. I've had that conversation myself with patients and families. It typically is a physician, but not always. Depends on the situation that we're in, whether it's an individual who's dying at home, dying in the hospital, how rapidly the dying process is expected to move along. Uh, but the important thing is to have that conversation so that patients can make informed decisions about their care and tell us what they want mm -hmm. and that families are part of that decision making. Again, sometimes it's the physician that says, uh, we think you have about this much longer to live. Uh, might be a nurse that would say that. We might have the conversation with the family first. We, often the conversation happens with the patient and the family. Is there anything that you would like to uh, add to that, Michael? I think it's hard, if I might interrupt, <laughs> I think it's hard for some family members to come to terms with it. Sure is. And then they think they are protecting mom or dad or, mm -hmm. you know, their, their loved one. Well, they really aren't because that loved one knows deep down. And if you try to keep it from them, they've lost faith in you. Okay, Lynn and Donna, both of you said that, uh, you know, he, the family sometimes tries to keep this information from the patient. But uh, both of you said that the patient knows, or at least usually knows. How do they know? I mean, if they're not given the information, what is there some kind of a in, intuitive process? I mean, do you have any explanation of that? Michael, you might be able to give more scientific details on this, but I think I can start by saying there's been a lot of research done on the knowing process of dying on the part of the patient. How does the person know? Well, chemically, there are many changes that happen. And we're talking not about traumatic death right now. Mm -hmm. We're talking about death that occurs over a time process from a chronic disease or uh, something that's not quite so chronic. Um, there's a number of chemical processes that operate throughout the entire body. And the brain gets signals from those chemical processes. Just like you're aware of when you're having pain, you're also aware when you're short of breath. You're aware of when you bump yourself on the kitchen counter. You are also aware, although maybe you can't put words on it, of the processes that are happening inside your body in the dying process because of those chemical changes. The brain is affected. The whole body is affected. It isn't a, a single part experience. Okay. So in other words, you sense that there is uh, just a general a generality that uh, there's your your body is not operating as it should be, and that uh, it is in a mode of say winding down. I think and you somehow in, pretty accurate. Yeah, there there's some metabolic changes that happen. Um, people's nutritional needs tend to decrease, um, um, and throughout the digestive tract, there's this uh, muscle movement where um, when you swallow food it's called peristalsis it slowly moves that food all the way through that giant tube from your mouth to your back end um, and that muscle movement can kind of decrease um, i know for patients that are in hospice where they're close to their end um, as that muscle movement slows down family members will sometimes try to keep getting them to eat even though they don't want to eat and you have to remind family members, I, I use the example, you know, after Thanksgiving, you way, way overeat and you just feel sick. Well, if your family member is not having this peristalsis be very effective anymore, 
even a couple bites of food can just sit in their stomach and they feel bloated. And then eating actually makes them feel worse, which leads to them not wanting to eat more. Um, and uh, so I recently had a child and um, kind of an instinctual thing is usually in a couple, one or the other will kind of go through like a, a nesting phase. I'm sure a lot of people have heard that phrase before. I think there's something similar when you're dying too that uh, people kind of get anxious. Um, they tend to maybe become more of a shut in, like they, they kind of close the world out. Um, sometimes some people go to one end of the spectrum or the other. Some people just kind of want to close out the whole world and kind of make it more of a private thing. Not that they're consciously trying to die, but they're just, they're less interested in their circle of influence just keep get, keeps getting smaller and smaller. And then there are some people, um, as they're nearing the end, like they are like, oh, wow, uh, let me reflect on my life. And, you know, I haven't don't have a great relationship with a child perhaps and like they'll try to reach out and uh, cross those bridges that maybe have been burned in the past and i want to introduce here uh be, we're going to have to uh, end this segment here in, in a little bit but before we end it i want to introduce the idea as as catholics uh, lynn and uh, donna and michael uh we have a responsibility to the dying to people uh you know to give care but not necessarily extreme care. Mm -hmm. And uh, what, how do you approach that as Catholics and so forth? And we're going to talk about that, I think, before we go any further into this, you know, when we come back after our break. But we are going to take a break here, so stay with us. It's a very interesting topic. We'll be right back. You've been listening to Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. When you're looking for intrigue, drama, friendship, and as the plot unfolds, betrayal, love, sorrow, a performance to keep you on the edge of your seat. You must see the American Passion Play. The Passion Play is the story you have known coming to life on the stage of the Center for the Performing Arts. This play is coming to Bloomington for a limited time, so don't delay. Get your tickets now at AmericanPassionPlay.org or call 309-829-3903, March 19th, March 26th, and April 2nd. Hi, this is Bob Johnston. You're listening to Being Catholic right here on Catholic Spirit Radio. We're back from our break, and we're here talking with a couple of special guests, Donna Redding and uh, Michael Knacker, and they are both nurses. And also my wife here is with us, and she is a nurse as well. And we are talking about death and dying and the process uh, of caring and treating people who are at the point of death or in the process of dying. And uh, one of the questions uh, that uh, is important, especially for Catholics, is when people are dying, what kind of care and treatment should be given to those people, what should or shouldn't be done? And I'm going to turn that over to our guests and let them talk on that. I think uh, Donna had something to say on that. I'll turn it over to you first, Donna, and then we'd like to hear also from you, Michael. And then, Lynn, anything that you would want to contribute would be important, too. I think it's essential at this point to differentiate between care and treatment. I'll elaborate in just a second. The dying person no longer needs treatment to cure a disease. The dying person, once the dying process is identified, needs care to complete the dying process comfortably and as pain-free as possible. So, We'll use the example of an individual who is been has been treated for cancer. 
and it's been determined that further treatment for cancer is not going to be affected, effective, that the individual is going to die from that disease. Healthcare providers switch their focus from treating the disease to caring for the individual who's in the dying process. It doesn't mean we don't care when we treat, mm -hmm. but our focus is on caring and providing care to ease the dying process, to make sure that we keep the individual as comfortable as we can, we manage pain, we manage breathing challenges, we may or may not need to provide food and fluids for the dying person. The closer the individual gets to dying, the less that individual needs food or fluids because the body systems methodically and over time begin to close down. And actually, we can cause pain, discomfort, or harm to an individual who is actively dying if we feed or give fluids to that individual. And that's a difficult concept for some family members to perceive and to take in. Why aren't we feeding mom? Why aren't we feeding dad? Why aren't we feeding my husband? There comes a point in the dying process where the individual really can't take in nutrients and fluids because the dying process doesn't require it. Michael and Lynn, do you want to uh, talk yeah. about that issue? Yeah. So um, most of our lives, we're eating, we're drinking, we're moving around, we're sweating, sneezing, breathing. We're doing the whole thing. As people are getting closer to, um, it's probably not a great analogy, but as you're approaching that black hole and you cross that event horizon and we're no longer trying to escape, but like we know where we're going, uh, the goals kind of change. <laughs> And kind of like you're saying, Donna, that you don't need the food and water anymore. Those metabolic changes need. And water is that wonderful thing, just helps all the chemistry in the body work the way it's supposed to. If you're not moving around very much anymore, your uh, need for food is going to go down. So if um, someone who's on hospice um, isn't having bowel movement anymore, well, if they are only eating a couple bites of applesauce a day, nothing's coming out. Um, it, when they're not moving around, you don't need all that water going in and out of you anymore because your metabolism just, it just keeps slowing and slowing and slowing. Um, and then uh, part of the breathing, the reason why we breathe is it's to get oxygen into our body, into our blood, and ultimately to get it into our brain. And if you get down to the cellular, cellular level, um, you, every cell in your body has this little, um, electrical power plant uh, called the mitochondria where the oxygen is pulled in and it uses the oxygen to break down the sugars in your body. Um, and with the oxygen, the sugar breaking out makes this electrical charge and that's how the whole thing works. So um, really the moment when you, when they say metabolic death has occurred, um, that chemical process isn't happening anymore. Um, so that's why um, I've heard it said, we're always like two minutes from dying. Um, as I keep talking, I'm holding my breath so I can keep talking, talking, talking. Um, at some point, I'm going to pass out, and then I'll start breathing like normal again. Um, but the, uh, the, the that process stops when you don't get the oxygen in your brain anymore, <clears throat> and when the electricity stops, that's when you're out. Mm -hmm. Lynn, do you want to comment further on that? I can't add to that other than 
this is the hardest thing to explain to people, the families. They just, for whatever reason, they don't want to face the fact this loved person is dying, and there's nothing they can do that's, I think, a big part of it. They want to do things to help, and they can't. You can't get it across to them that it does the body no good. It does harm. Mm-hmm. So they get. So you know, keep them comfortable. You know, be be happy, be calm, be be with them yeah. in this journey. Yeah. Be they present. Feel, they feel if they don't do something or you don't do something, they're somehow abandoning right. their loved ones, and and, and somehow or another, they're uh, they're contributing to uh, to their death. To their death and. And so and they many want, live many years with uh, guilty consciences because mm-hmm. I, I let them starve mom to death or she was not given any water and I must have killed her. Yeah, just not true. Yeah. No, the only way true. you know that is happening if mom is saying, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, and then you're not giving it. Well, then that's when you're crossing into the, the moral no-no mm-hmm. territory. Yeah, mom. Um, mom, you if have she's to kind asking, of follow those cues. Yeah, right. If she's asking for food and water, mm-hmm. she's not ready to die yet. No. Yeah. Once that ask stops, and the ability to consume it comfortably stops, that's what we refer to as actively dying. Lynn, you hit the nail on the head when you said, "Help the help the dying person, be with the dying person," and that's part of caring. Being in physical contact with the individual who's dying is sometimes very comforting. Depends on what kind of pain or discomfort they're having, but that can be helpful. Uh, The dying person is very much aware that people are around him or her. The absolute last sense to go before the moment of death is hearing. So speaking to your dying family member, to your dying loved one, is so important. It's the opportunity to say, I love you. It's the opportunity to say, I forgive you, if you need to say that. Mm -hmm. It's the opportunity to say, thank you. Forgive me, if you need to say that. And it would be important also then to be aware of what you're saying because you wouldn't want to be saying, in other words, making the assumption that because the person seems to be unconscious that they might not be able to hear you and you can say things that may actually be detrimental to their Ooh, mental state. That's one thing they talk a lot about in nursing school is yep. if a pa- like if you have a coma patient or if they're unconscious or for whatever reason, um, always act as though they can hear you. So because they it, can. Yeah. Or at the very least, you're not sure yes or no. Um, you want to always err on the side of caution. Like if you have a patient that's unresponsive, um, eventually they might get better. But you don't want them to tell you, hey, you know, when I was unresponsive, I could still hear what was going on in the room. And it scared me when all of a sudden people were doing things to me. Uh, so they always taught, you know, if you have someone that's unresponsive, always say what you're doing as you're about to do or as you're doing. Kind of mm-hmm. say, hey, I'm going to be touching your hand because um, when you're losing um, uh, power over your body, um, it's really frightening. And just little things like that can help ease people's anxiety so much. Exactly. Sort of like being on the radio. Uh, you want to really be careful about what you say when you bang your <laughs> finger and think that the microphone is off. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. So. Precisely. Exactly. And you don't want to really agitate your patient, the person. There's also been some studies done I don't know how scientific they were, but maybe not. But the idea 
that the family giving permission mm-hmm. that you can leave now. You've done a good job. Oh, you mean the family saying, you can go now, Mom? Yes. So important. So important. Your job's done. It's okay. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes the dying individual, and I know both of you have seen this or heard it, sometimes the dying individual will wait until there's nobody else in the room. And that'll be the moment that they'll cross yes. the bridge, that they'll pass, that they'll move on. When um, you say wait, uh, is that like some kind of a determination to, I mean, is, is there, is, is the, does the will have the ability to extend the physical life? In my personal opinion and in my experience, yes. To extend life, no. But to be involved in the moment of passing from life to death, I believe the will has a lot to do with it. Uh, some We've all known uh, individuals who have, in quotes, waited to die until they saw a particular family member. Right. Uh, and families have said this, she's waiting for John, he's waiting for Anne, whatever it is. And when that individual shows up, and has that conversation with the dying individual, whether the dying individual is awake or not, doesn't matter. That's the time sometimes for some who are dying for them to say, okay, I can go now. Right. I said goodbye to John. I said goodbye to Anne. Yeah. Or they can say, I really want to, and, and, and it, it, it's not so much a conscious process. It's not like the individual is actively working this out. Again, the, the metabolic changes have a lot to do with this. But there's a, a certain element for some where the moment of death is intentionally private. As Catholics, uh, it seems that that sort of coincides with our concept or idea, you know, when we say of giving up the ghost, that is, or giving up the spirit. In other words, there is something that goes out of existence when we lose our life. Yes. And uh, in the Catholic Church, if you go back to the Aristotelian concept, the Aristotelian philosophy, that would be the soul. In other words, uh, Catholicism understands the soul as something. You know, in other words, all life forms have soul. Anything alive has a soul. If you, the the life itself is a soul, I mean, even a grain of wheat has a soul, so to speak. A dog or a cat has a soul. And what we mean by that, you know, from from the philosopher Aristotle, which you know the Catholic Church uh, finds very very important, especially the early Church, you know, is that that uh, actual life itself. There's something. It's not just a matter of chemicals. Uh, in other words, when we die, all the chemicals of our bodies and our material remains, mm-hmm. but the life itself is gone. Precisely. And the body, we, the mind, and the right, soul. Right. And the soul, of course, in a human being is different from the soul in in a, in a in an animal or, or something. Our soul is a rational soul, whereas an animal soul is not and, uh, and it's the soul that right, moves on in the dying process. Right, exactly. Right. And so, in effect, uh, it's the will somehow almost demonstrates this, that there is the ability to hold back or delay the passing of that life process or for that some, soul. For yeah, some. For some. Mm, certainly not in the case of traumatic death. But okay. no, we're not, we're not no. really talking about traumatic no. death. No, we're talking about the process the prolonged of dying, dying process. But you are right. We want to make that clear, and uh, we'll, we'll get back to that. Uh, we'll talk, if we can, here a little bit more about traumatic death. We also want to get to 
the religious aspect, uh, both from the loved one's point of view, from the dying person's point of view, and maybe from our society in general's point of view. I did want to get in one other thing as we're on this topic. What about extraordinary treatment? I mean, we have the concept that a person can possibly, to a certain extent, in a dying process where it's not traumatic, delay the actual passing of the life process, the soul, the actual, you know, dying moment by an act of will. But what about an act of extraordinary treatment? We have a lot of things nowadays where a person may be dying, but nevertheless, with certain kinds of treatment, we could intervene and we could actually keep the bodily processes going. At what point do you decide uh, if and when that should be uh, ended? Well, that's where advanced care planning comes in. Mm -hmm. And that's a point that I don't want to see us pass over here. It is so important, no matter what your level of health is, to have an advanced care plan in mind for yourself in communication with your families. I will uh, use a couple of examples. Individual I uh, take care of uh, told her family that she paid for her own funeral and made arrangements and got it all taken care of. The individual is, is perfectly healthy. One of the family members said, are you trying to tell us something? No, what she was trying to say was, I've made my decisions as to how I want that process to happen after I die. We also need to make those decisions about what we want to happen when we are dying, when we've been identified as sick enough to not be able to continue to live. What do we individually want our care providers and our families to do for us? Yeah, these issues are so complex. Like there's really no true black and white. And, Absolutely. And there are some, but like those are very few and far between. A lot of it does come down to what the individual wants. Um, I often talk about the the cost of healthcare, not in terms of dollars and cents, but like the, the human cost. I mean, you think about even something simple like uh, a blood draw or having your blood pressure taken. Like that does cause some level of injury or harm to the person. You have to think about like what is my return on this? Um, if uh, if grandma's got seven types of cancer and her ribs were broken in CPR yesterday and she's 97. It's like, do we want to put her on the liver transplant list? It's like, probably not. It's like, um, it, like we're, we're going to cause more harm by doing this to grandma than not doing it because we're all going to die in the end. The example you just gave of the, the, the woman that um, had already purchased everything, had her funeral set up um, in the uh, uh, not, very great decisions are made in times of distress. And um, I, I don't know about anything in this time, but I've heard stories stories in general. There are some predatory companies out there that can maybe try and take advantage of people and overcharge in times of distress. That by having things set up in advance, you can make more logical decisions and there's less opportunity for people to ha make mistakes or be put in positions where they have to make decisions they didn't want to. And the same goes for health care at the end of life. Have the, have the conversation with your family about, do you want to be put on a ventilator if you are identified as dying? It's completely different. If you're going to have an operation, you're a healthy individual, you're not dying, it's completely different. If we put you on a ventilator for a little while, say to treat pneumonia, 
to regulate your blood gases, to get you back to health. In the dying process, that's what we're talking about with advanced care planning. Talk with your health care provider, your doctor, your nurse practitioner, involve your family, and make those decisions in a document that everybody signs and witnesses and is aware of and identify uh, a durable power of attorney for health care who can make the decisions you would want made in the event that you're not able to make those decisions anymore. Okay, we're going to stop here and take a break, and uh, we'll come back. And when we come back, we want to talk a little bit maybe more about some of the uh, religious problems uh, that we have, maybe some problems uh, with the family, and the whole idea of uh, coping with uh, uh, death uh, from both the point of view of the patient and the point of view of the uh, loved one and those in mourning. And again, we're talking here mostly about dying and the process of death. We're not talking about uh, a sudden traumatic death. And uh, maybe if we have some time, uh, you might be able to get in something about that. That would probably, in a way, well, it would have to, that would affect the family, of course, and it wouldn't be a process uh, in which the patient would be involved, obviously, if someone dies suddenly. So... Uh, we'll, except maybe for planning ahead of time, yeah. but uh, we'll so we'll we'll try to get some of those topics in when we come back. So stay with us. We'll be right back. You've been listening to Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. When you're looking for intrigue, drama, friendship, and as the plot unfolds, betrayal, love, sorrow, a performance to keep you on the edge of your seat, you must see the American Passion Play. The Passion Play is the story you have known coming to life on the stage of the Center for the Performing Arts. This play is coming to Bloomington for a limited time, so don't delay. Get your tickets now at AmericanPassionPlay.org or call 309-829-3903, March 19th, March 26th, and April 2nd. Hi, this is Bob Johnston. You're listening to Being Catholic right here on Catholic Spirit Radio. We're having a very, very interesting conversation with the three of our nurses here, Donna uh, Redding and also Michael uh, Knacker and my wife Lynn, all are nurses who uh, have been very, very close to people who are in the process of dying. And of course, in some situations where they face the death that uh, by trauma and had to deal with the families and so forth afterwards. And we've been talking about a lot of the regular uh, situations uh, of death and dying as nurses and and giving care and also giving treatment and making uh, life and death decisions uh, on on these things and and uh, treatment and uh, care and, and and how to go about doing it and dealing with the family sometimes there are these experiences we're not going to get into it a lot in this program maybe we will in some other program where people actually have experiences and nurses have to face and uh, deal with these situations where a patient may have an experience where they feel they've actually have died and then somehow come back and they relate that experience. I'm sure that when the person has an experience like this, it can be sometime uh, maybe very, very uh, confusing. Uh, Maybe they're trying to understand exactly what happened. I'm just going to throw this out here. Uh, Do you people as nurses ever confront a situation like this? And uh, when and if you do, uh, what are some of these uh, 
things that happened and uh, how have you reacted to it? I've had experiences uh, a number of times with patients in what you refer to as a near-death experience. Uh, It's near-death in the sense that the individual looks clinically dead, and we've already established pretty much what that means, that there's no vital signs, there's no blood pressure, there's no pulse, there's no respirations, doesn't seem to be any brain activity, clinical death, but for some reason the person's not completely dead. And that individual can, after the process of resuscitation, tell us about experiences that he or she had while in that clinical death moment. Exactly how long that moment is, I don't know that anybody could define that. Some experiences that individuals have told me about is seeing certain colors, seeing lights, hearing the voices of individuals that they knew uh, earlier in their life that have already passed on. They Some describe seeing Jesus. Uh, often there's a light experience, some sort of light that the individual sees and then feels physically returning from seeing that light or seeing Jesus or hearing the voice or seeing the face of a deceased loved one. But, yes. they, but they're very much alive after that yeah. experience. Now, if they relate that, I mean, is there, uh, it, it, do, what is their state after this usually? Is there some kind of, a, are they confused? I mean, is there anything that you as nurses uh, have to do? Michael, do you want to comment uh, on any of that? Uh, I don't have a lot of experience with situations like that, but from what I have heard, like it's usually a pretty tender experience. Like people don't come back feeling angry or terrified. It's usually a very calming experience. Yeah, they're I often very that. excited mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. And they not, are. Not, and not to f- sound like a complete wet blanket on on the, the light at the end of the tunnel, um, I have read that there are theories that um, the reason why you see that tunnel or that light at the end of the tunnel, that it's actually as your eye is losing oxygen, that the, 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 the photoreceptors are starting to shut down, that the last bit of your eye that gets oxygenated blood is the dead center. So that light at the end of the tunnel, it could be that's the only part of your eye that's still working mm-hmm. as you're going now. And then the working of the eye resumes when the body systems begin to turn back on, turn yeah, back on precisely. Back, yeah. Yeah. But usually people who have near death experiences like that are very excited to tell me about it, to oh, tell yeah. caregivers about it. And I found most often they're very calm about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only one I know that was not real happy about it was my grandfather. And when he died, he was resuscitated and he had gone through the near death experience and he said he did not want to come back. Mm-hmm. It was too nice. It was too peaceful. And your people were there that he knew. His family was there. And why would you want to come back to this? <laughs> but it's so calm and peaceful here in Illinois in the spring. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think the most important point to make about a near-death experience is certainly it happens. It's very much a reality. It's not... A dream. It's not mumbo jumbo. It's very much a reality. There's a lot of research being done on that process. And 
honestly, we could spend an hour just talking about that alone. Right. We're gonna we're gonna right. have to talk about that probably in another program. We yeah. certainly don't have the I time to wanna, time to treat it today. So I did want to interject that there's a study that just came out. Uh, a man, 87 year old, was having a seizure during a CT scan, I believe. Yes, I saw that. Yes, and they could trace what was going on in the brain during the dying process. Mm-hmm. And how things sped up. Yeah. But there aren't any real conclusions from that yet. No, we have to be very careful to admit on both sides of the question from a spiritual point of view and also from a plain physical material point of view uh, that what we don't know, we don't know. And so uh, we can can give explanations. They are not necessarily the correct explanations. We speculate and we don't know. But uh, I'll, I'll move on a little bit here and uh, get, get into uh, something before we close. And that is, uh, what about from uh, like a, a religious point of view or a, a Catholic point of view, especially with loved ones and family, uh, what are some of the problems or situations or whatever it is you might meet along those lines as nurses in uh, treating uh, people uh, in the process of dying or even dealing with family where there has been a sudden or traumatic death. Is there anything you'd like to comment on that, either Michael or... or, or uh, well, in a sudden death, sometimes you have the problem of uh, dealing with the family when it comes to organ donations. And that's a whole nother potter. <clears throat> I mean, that you could go on forever about. There are a lot of intricacies in it and so forth, the ability, how and when and so forth. There is that that the nurse deals with to a point, really the doctor should. But Yeah, and with the organ donor thing, um, I, I've heard from multiple people before say, oh, don't sign that organ donor thing because the doctors, they'll just kill you right off. And that is so far from the truth. Like, yeah, there's um, no truth in that at all. Yeah, That's for, an important topic. Go ahead and continue yeah. on this for just a bit, both the, of you, because people do worry about that. Yeah, no, that is so far out of the minds of anyone there. Like, your primary is to treat the patient. Like, if a patient had a chance of living and they die, most healthcare people look at that as a loss. And people like to have a win. They're not going to just give up just so they can get an organ for some other patient. Like, uh, healthcare people, like, they look at the patient that's in the room. Uh, and the, uh, the parameters for organ donation are so tight that like odds are that wouldn't even come into play. But um, uh, all, all, all things tend towards the good in the eyes of God that um, it's nice for that to at least be an opportunity out of a dark situation. Um, but those do tend to be the, the sudden um, catastrophic situations like car accidents or whatnot that um, because it, it's such a rare thing and like truly, truly, your nurse and your doctor aren't going to kill you for your kidneys. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, um, that brings us back to the point of advanced care planning. Mm-hmm. If you want to be an organ donor, by all means, make that happen. You can do that through the state of Illinois, the secretary of state's website. In the event, I, I, I would prefer not to even go there right now in the event of children, because that's such a different set oh, of circumstances yeah. legally and, ethically and so on. Um, if you want to be an organ donor, there are certainly ways to do that. 
your healthcare provider can help you to do that. And you make the, you make that decision when you are alive and well. Um, if that decision hasn't been made, well, then that's a whole set of circumstances that need to be managed at the point of death. But in the in the process of dying that we're talking about right now, in in other words, a process over time, the question of organ donation typically comes up pretty early in the dying process. Mm-hmm. And so it's not an immediate at the moment of death decision. Uh, the more important element, I think, is looking at the dying process as a religious experience through the eyes of Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who describes seven stages of dying. And those stages often happen, uh, stages of dying as well as stages of grieving, those stages begin before death. Uh, The first one is denial. I can't believe that you just told me that mom's going to die from her cancer. I can't believe you just told me that I'm going to die from my cancer. Denial. The second is typically anger. What do you mean I'm dying? And that anger is often directed at the Lord. We hear it not every time, but it's not uncommon. Why is God doing this to mom? Why is God doing this to me? These are perfectly normal and expected stages of dying. It moves on to bargaining. What could I do, Lord, what can you and I make a deal for me to stick around a little longer? It ultimately moves through processes to acceptance and resolution. It's so important for healthcare providers and family members to understand that the dying individual, as well as family members, need support at each one of those stages. Mm-hmm. That's right. So, what kind of support, uh, Donna? Do you- can the nurses give and do you at that point suggest to the family that they call in uh, other support? I like to recommend that um, we involve certainly nurses who have experience in the dying process to work with families and, and individuals who are involved in the dying process. Certainly doesn't mean that individuals who have not had that kind of experience, can't provide a number of aspects of care. Um, But conversations can be had, certainly with a nurse, certainly with a physician. I also heartily recommend at that point a psychologist to converse with the dying patient, with the uh, bereaving families, to process those thoughts, those angers, those fears, to achieve a spiritual and psychological level of comfort. It's also a good a good time to involve a clergy member, mm-hmm. a deacon, a priest who has experience with the dying process. And the process, again, we're talking about is one over time, not a traumatic death. That's a whole different set of circumstances. But involve your clergy and receive the sacraments. Michael? Um. Yeah, big fan of reconciliation. Um, I think that is a wildly undervalued sacrament. Um, I've heard that the Pope does it daily. Um, A a lot of the church doctors have recommended uh, a a weekly reconciliation. Um, I know a lot of us do a lot of not great things throughout the day, every day. I know I do. Um, And it's it's nice to have that little infusion of sanctifying grace to kind of bring it back on track. 
and asking for the apostolic <coughs> blessing it, during the rite of uh, the last right anointing of the sick. Yeah, the viatical. I would uh, uh, strongly recommend thing. also reconciliation. I think mm-hmm. probably it would be a very a very relieving thing, especially you know for a Catholic to hear a priest say, you know. I absolve you of your sins. And yeah, that, that that's such to a hear that because because mm-hmm. the and, church it predates psychology. So like I mean, it, it's the very ancient thing that um, to to just for someone to hear the words that your sins are forgiven. Um, that I, I I wish the line for the for the confession were as long as the line for communion. Um, I agree because uh, <laughs> yeah. it's not a it's very polite thing to talk about the concept of being unworthy of receiving communion, uh, but it really is uh, an act of mercy to correct the sinner. I know people talk a lot about not judging people, um, but if it, 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 it's important to say, don't do this on Facebook or social media. That's not the platform because, like, then that's just that superficial judgment that people hate so much. But, like, if it's someone that you have a personal relationship with that you know, um, you know, you don't want to beat them over the head with the catechism or the Bible, but um, in a kind, uh, coming from a place of mercy, just, you know, hey, have you thought about trying to change this or, um, for people that are in relationships, I often say, if you're trying to get your partner to change something for the better, always start the conversation off with, what can I do better first? Because um, that really kind of um, disarms people from getting defensive. Um, and these uncomfortable conversations tend to be some of the most important ones, much like, you know, when people are about to die, sometimes uh, in healthcare, you don't want to tell a patient that they're dying when they are. Um, but sometimes letting people know, hey, this is happening, uh, it gives people the opportunity to start to prepare for it instead of deny, deny, deny. Sometimes they get caught off guard if it's one of those not quite a traumatic one, but it's happening pretty quickly. It's like, hey, you got maybe a few minutes to make your peace with God. So start working on it. Yeah, and I would I would just um, temper that a, a bit. Yeah, we do want to tell people that they're dying. We can't tell them the hour or the day. We can get pretty close, but there's nothing wrong with telling an individual who is dying that they are dying. It's not losing hope. And that's another concept that mm-hmm. we have to work with. So you're, you're right on track with that. It's an opportunity, and sooner than later, to get somebody involved in the sacraments, according to their wishes, to have the conversations, to not wait until, and um, Lynn, you brought up last rites, just a point of clarification, the anointing of the sick is a sacrament that's available to many individuals, not just those who are dying. And that really is another topic of itself that I would leave to the hands of right. clergy to differentiate uh, yeah. the processes. And let, let but I would not allow, allow the clergy to say, I have given them the sacrament of the sick, they're all right. I would not, as myself, accept that. I want the sacrament like what used to be, the sacrament at the time mm-hmm. of death so you can have the apostolic blessing and you're anointed right as you're leaving departing right and that sacrament still exists lynn you're absolutely mm-hmm. it's right it's not gone and it's done my my point and as i say i would leave it for clergy to really differentiate between the degree if i if i could use that term 
in the anointing of the sick, between it's, last rites and the anointing of the sick. It, but it's important to get right. people to the sacraments. The last one I have noticed in those that are dying is the isolation. They will self-isolate. Mm-hmm. And the family cannot cope with this. They cannot understand they this. They need our help, yeah. And they need our help at that time. This is a natural thing. Mm-hmm. It's like animals, when they go to die, they will separate themselves mm-hmm. from all their loved ones. It's yeah. it's Not everybody goes through it, but it's there. Yeah, it's pretty common. It's been a wonderful conversation, and we've gotten a lot of information from you people, and it's uh, something that uh, perhaps needs to be talked about more and maybe we can have another show in the future along these lines and uh, also treat the problem of uh, some of these uh, other experiences. But uh, we're going to have to close at this time our show. I hope everybody out there enjoyed it. So we'll say our closing prayer. St. Michael, the archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, Prince of the heavenly host, by the power of God, thrust into hell Satan and all evil spirits who wander through the world for the ruin of souls. Amen. You've been listening to Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. If you'd like to contact Bob, email bob at catholicspiritradio.com. Again, that's bob at catholicspiritradio.com. Catholic Spirit Radio relies on your support to bring programming like this and EWTN 24 hours a day. Please help keep Catholic Spirit Radio on the air with your generous support. Donate online at catholicspiritradio.com. Or send a donation to Catholic Spirit Radio, 108 Boykins Place, Normal, Illinois, 61761. That's Catholic Spirit Radio, 108 Boykins Place, Normal, Illinois, 61761. Catholic Spirit Radio is a 501c3, and all donations are tax-deductible. Thank you for your support of Catholic Spirit Radio 